from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 361, SQL Server Packs with guest Aaron Bertrand, recorded Thursday, March 13th, 2014. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Uh, here once a week, just like every week. And hey, we've been up to a few things. Uh, one of them is I now have set up a Facebook page so that each show is posted there the day that it's published, and you can write comments there if you like it. If I get a good comment, something that other people could listen to, I will read it on the show. So feel free to contribute that way. And I guess I should probably set up a Google Plus page as well. It's only fair. Uh, my guest today is Aaron Bertrand, and Aaron is a senior consultant for SQL Century Incorporated, who are the makers of performance monitoring and event management software for SQL Server, Analysis Services, and Windows. He's been blogging at SQL Blog since 2006, and he focuses on manageability, performance, and new features, and he's been a Microsoft MVP, probably in SQL Server, since 1997. Welcome, sir. Hello, Richard. How are you? I am embarrassed that you have not been on the show before because uh-huh. uh, clearly one of the leading lights in the SQL space, and oh, uh, it's been entirely too long. Uh, yeah, I guess so. And a fellow Canadian to boot. Hey. Yeah. yeah. What do you know about that? Not, not a boot, to boot. <laughs> All right, East Coast boy. I'm here on the West Coast. I don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> so what have you been working on? Well, uh, so one of the things that I've been working on is uh, is helping out with our new release that's mm-hmm. coming out. Uh, we have an 8.0 release that's coming out shortly. Um, actually, it should be well out by the time uh, people are hearing this. Sure. Um, I've also been working on our performance blog, sqlperformance.com. And uh, that's about it. That's cool. <laughs> and you're a speaker at SQL Intersections as well, which we're both going to be at in a couple of weeks. Uh, that's correct. So Kevin Klein and mm-hmm. I are doing a pre-con on Saturday of that show. And then uh, I have a couple of sessions and we also have a, a vendor keynote at that show. Nice. Yeah. And performance is, continues to be the thing with SQL, isn't it? It's a, it's a steady challenge to keep stuff running fast. Well, the, the big thing about SQL Server is that it will let you do just about anything you want to do. And most of those things you probably shouldn't do. <laughs> SQL Server, it's your foot. <laughs> exactly. Whatever you want to do, we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not always a good idea, but uh, it'll it'll always work. There's a bit of a thing going on in Connect right now around SQL Server, right? Uh, so th- the one thing that I know about Connect for sure is that there are a couple of items out there we want people to know about um, that will help us get final service packs for um, SQL Server 2008, SQL Server 2008 R2, uh, and also a second service pack for 2012. Right. Microsoft has committed to a second service pack for SQL Server 2012, so that's great news. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, As but, opposed to just waiting to the next version of SQL Server. Right. And uh, But 2008 and 2008 R2, uh, there's been radio silence. And the problem with that is those go out of support later this year, wow. in a few months. 
And so we have, you know, double digit cumulative updates on the last service pack for those builds. And as you know, a lot of people will never install cumulative updates yeah. or it takes them forever to, you know, because they just can't justify putting the testing in to do those. Yeah, yeah. But there are a lot of important fixes in those, you know, high teens of uh, cumulative updates that have gone out there. So it'd be really nice to get one, you know, some final closure on those two versions and get those uh, service packs out there. So they're actually soliciting opinions for uh, what do you want to see in that final service pack? Right. And one of the big things that you can do on, on Connect, you know, a lot of people go on there and they vote for their favorite items, the things right. that they want to see happen. But a much more compelling uh, way to have Microsoft listen to what you want to say and, and which features and which fixes that you value highly is to actually leave a comment and explain how it affects your business. Right. And, you know, what, how it helps you make decisions about SQL Server and perhaps what you're going to do on the next version. So one of the things that I think people take from SQL Server 2008 and 2008 R2 is that if they don't release final service packs for these, uh, for these branches, you know, they're going to think that Microsoft is going to continue doing the same thing for the next version of SQL Server. So I, I think that, um, there are very serious trickle down perceptions that happen based on what Microsoft does now, even for services or service packs and versions that are no longer current. Well, and it's an interesting point that uh, 2008 is going out of, of primary support. Like it doesn't seem like that long ago. Right. I think we, uh, we got spoiled with a couple of quick releases there. So, right. you know, we waited so long for the the difference between 2000 and 2005. Yeah. And it, it was worth the wait it, as it turned out. Um, but then 2008 came out, you know, it was three years and then 2008 R2 came out and it was a year and a, a year and six months or a year and eight months or something like that. Um, so I, I think we're starting to get used to this new cadence of releases and it makes the gap between releases seem much smaller. Well, and I, I think you're trying to get away from it. it. Used to be that upgrading SQL Server was almost something you didn't do. You just built out a new server because your hardware was expiring, and right. then you decided what apps you're going to migrate or what apps you aren't going to migrate. I can't tell you how many times I've run a Maps query across a network and found ancient versions, you know, SQL 2000, still running some app because it does the job. Right. Yeah, some of those versions, you know, once you get something installed and running, as long as you're not making a lot of changes to it, um, those will just keep running forever. Sure. I mean, you can put it on the, you know, the redheaded stepchild uh, server in the corner that <laughs> isn't, isn't capable of doing anything else, but it'll keep running that HR app or finance app or whatever it happens to be. Well, it, to me, it just doesn't seem I'll, – I'll even P to V that machine just so that I don't have to rely on the hardware anymore because it's just not worth the disruption to try and change server versions for an app that everybody's basically happy with. Right, right. And uh, a lot of people still, even with that option, they'll still leave that server there because the P2V process doesn't always work perfectly yeah. either. Yeah, so, it you know, it, it doesn't really matter unless they're trying to consolidate hardware. Um, it doesn't really matter that that server sits in the corner and keeps chugging along. Yeah, as long as it keeps running. Yeah, it's just when that when that machine face plants and there's and the app is now down. What do you do? Yeah, and I and I think for that progression too, there's a a slightly different vibe right now, and that is you know the speed of processors has stopped changing. Right. 
right? So people aren't rushing out and buying new sets of servers every two years because there isn't a new, you're not really getting an upgrade. If you buy new processors today, I mean, you might get more cores on the processor and that also changes their business opinions too, based on the changes to SQL servers licensing. Yes. So, um, you know, the, the reason to upgrade or the, the things that you would do to upgrade either SQL Server or the hardware or both have to be much more compelling today than they did five years ago. Well, I, I think it's I, I think the change in licensing to the per core versus per socket model in 2012 is keeping a lot of people at 2010. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate that we had a free lunch for so long. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, people think that, oh, we're, we're getting a raw deal now when actually we had a really sweet deal before. Yeah. And, and we're just, we're catching up to reality now with where we're actually paying per core, well, which I mean, is what, which is what you should be paying for. Yeah. But maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe not at the current prices. Well, I think we just got lazy, too. Because it was per socket, you just didn't think about it. You bought as many cores as you could lay your hands on, whether you're using them or not. Now, with the current pricing model, you actually have to sit down and look, figure out, do I need this many cores? Right. I also think that the new licensing model encourages you to buy the latest and greatest hardware with the right number of cores, just because, you know, the, the CPU speed may not have gone up, but the pipelines are getting smarter. Yeah, the pipelines are smarter. The cache is getting bigger. Um, the, your your ability to install more memory is getting bigger, and uh, so there there definitely are some advantages to to faster hardware today, especially if you can make use of of memory uh, versus CPU, right. which is you know what a lot of workloads on SQL Server are going to take the most advantage of. Well, and and in, yeah, it's this is a non-trivial price change depending on how many cores you've got. Like it's a lot of money. Yeah, when 2012 came out, I heard a lot of objection to this. And, you know, my counterpoint was, well, how many people have uh, processors with more than four cores already? You know, Anybody running AMD hardware. Right. And there, so there is a discount on AMD for that specific reason. So if you have AMD cores, your licensing is slightly different. Um, right. So you, you don't pay the same. It, it, it's not exactly sticker price if you have AMD cores. Oh, okay. So, but, but on the flip side of that, you know, there are a lot of people that will um, shout from the rooftops that the AMD processors are a little less reliable than the Intel ones. So, well, and it's just not as sophisticated, too. I think AMD has been running down this path of keeping their pipeline short. But putting many, many cores per socket so that it, at a comparable price, you know, it's just a different approach to providing similar value. Right. Where Intel's got fewer cores per socket, but the cores are really deep and they do a lot per cycle. Yeah, I hear you. Um, but yeah, when the, so when this licensing change came out, most people, and it, not everybody, obviously, but most people were running four core processors. Yep. And the per core licensing cost for Enterprise Edition was roughly a quarter of what it was per processor yeah. before. So for a lot of people, th there really wasn't a price jump. It just looked like it because they, you know, because the way the pricing was listed, uh, people were, were thinking that they would be paying a lot more than they were before. Yeah. It, 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 I think it just frightens people really. And I called yeah. it 2010, but I guess it's actually 2008 R2. Yeah, I, I think most people know what you mean. It, yeah. it just happens to be that that was the year it was released. I really hope Microsoft never uses R2 in a SQL Server name again. <sighs> yeah. It just caused so much confusion. 
It still does today. I still answer questions about, you know, why did I, I have this database that I created in 2008 R2. Why won't it restore to my production 2008 server? <laughs> I see that constantly. Oh, man. Well, it, yeah, I don't know that R2 is ever a good idea. There was a philosophical piece around it around uh, Windows, which is still using it, right? We've got 2012 R2 now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, on one hand, it was like it was less threatening for you to upgrade from something with an, that was the same number you were used to plus an R2. But then it right. also could, you know, confuse people as well. Yeah, and we, Microsoft, the SQL Server team at least, really listened to us because I think there were three or four of us in a room of about 30 at an MVP summit maybe a year, year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was either the, the last, the summit before last or the one before that. And we really, we probably went over the top laying into them about how, the R2 name was such a bad idea and that they really shouldn't call SQL Server 2014 SQL Server 2012 R2, which I believe was the original intention. It was going to match what Windows was called. Right. And the SQL Server team bent and the Windows team didn't listen at all. So, Well, I mean, uh, it also reflects in the actual version number. So when you check a version number on 2008, it's version 10. And when you check it on R2, it's 10.5. 10.5, right. right. Where 2012 was is 11. So presumably, well, I guess we'll know when Hecaton actually ships, whether it's 12 or, or 11.5. Oh, it's 12. Okay. It's 12. And I, th I think the, um, the 10.5 version was partly because of the name and partly because there really wasn't any change in the database engine. Right. In 2008, R2 was mostly a, a BI release, mostly right. the SSAS and SSRS features. Not that we didn't want those. Those are good features. Sure, of course. But, of uh, course. It's but people who were just running the engine, the, not a very compelling upgrade to go from 2008 to 2008, R2, especially when it's full cost. But even the naming looks like it's just a service pack. Yeah. And so now you've got it. Now you've got this thing coming out of. I mean, I'm interested that both 2008 and 2002 are coming out of primary support at the same time. That's right. Yeah, they're sunsetted to the same uh, timeline. Yeah, but with two years difference in the release time, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. If, I think they uh, pushed out 2008 because of the. 2008 R2 sales. That's not, there's no inside information there. That's just my um, conjecture. Yeah. Well, it, it does seem like they're, they're driving us to 2012, which means we have to deal with this core versus socket issue. Yeah. For better or worse, that's what's happening. Time to figure stuff out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you deal with performance problems. Any favorite ones? What's your pet peeve these days? Oh, boy. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> I'm willing to go long to dig through yeah. some good performance challenges. So I, I have a bunch of little things that I tend to harp on. And it's uh, it's mostly about best practices. Mm -hmm. and, and not just, you know, if you're going to go out and write some code today, these are the kinds of things that I would expect you to do. And, you know, that's for stuff that's in your system. Right. My big pet peeve these days is, um, and I, I'm not trying to call out anybody in the community, but I see a lot of people um, answering questions or posting blog posts that have, um, you know, sample code, T-SQL code, that's just full of horrendous, bad practices. And th things that work okay in that scenario that they're posting, 
you know, for that very specific issue. But if you take that code and, and apply it somewhere else, um, it could break or it could cause serious performance issues. Right. Uh, Microsoft is notorious for those too. Their uh, MSDN books online, uh, that is not exactly a, uh, uh, panacea of good code. Yes. It's, uh, Don't use them as coding samples. Yeah. There's, uh, there are a lot of things out there. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the community will look at the samples that Microsoft provides and assume that this is a best practice. Right. Or they'll, they'll read a blog post from, you know, community person A or community person B and say, Oh, this must be really good code because of who wrote it. Yeah. And so the, you know, the, the concept that I've been trying to push people toward is the is do as I say and as I do. So people say, oh, well, you should do this. And then when their own code is full of lines of code that aren't doing that thing, uh, it's kind of hypocritical. And, you know, I'm guilty of it as well. It's not it's not just everybody but me. Yeah. Um, but I just I find that. If there are things that can break in certain scenarios, you should always write it in such a way that it's not going to break, even if it's even if it's not possible to break in your scenario, especially if you're sharing code or if you're learn, you know, you have people on your team that are learning from you. Yeah, it's always a challenge. I, I've never written code that I was willing to put out as a sample on the first try. Like you do need to go back and refactor and think through how it might be used, make it a little clearer, more concise, you know. Sure. And, you know, the things that I tend to blog about are things that you just form into habits. So a cu couple of examples. One is uh, using uh, date time literals, right? So you use a string and you use M slash D slash Y. And that's going to work on your system every day of the week. That's going to work on your production system probably. But then once you put that code out on a blog or on Stack Overflow or on uh, answers.sqlperformance.com or anywhere where you're sharing your code with other people, now they take that code and they put it on a Spanish server or on a French server or a British server. Right. And it, suddenly everything is going to break. And this happens a lot. You know, it's very common to take English publications and move them to other languages. Sure. And it, it gets even worse when people post uh, table scripts, uh, table definition. So they'll post a create table script and they'll put um, the date time data into a, a string column. And so, you know, not only do you have this this case where, well, now anybody can put any date in there they want. So if they enter six slash five slash 2012, who knows if they meant June 5th or May 6th? Right. Nobody. And they could enter um, 13 slash 13 slash 2012 because it's a string column. There's no validation. Right. So now you've got garbage data in your column. Yep. Evil. You lose you, you lose the validation. You lose all of your date time math. So if you want to you know, extract the month, first you have to convert it to a date time before you can extract the month mm -hmm. or or add it or, you know, subtract or. Um, do date diff. There are all kinds of things that you lose when you do that. And I just, I see so many people out there that, you know, they want to store their favorite date format as a string because they want to, they want to look at it that way in the table. Well, they don't, don't worry about the storage. The storage is not your problem. The right. Storage is SQL service problem. If you want to present it, 
in a way that represents how you want to think about the date, even that's a bad idea in a lot of cases. Because if you're presenting a date on a web page and you have one visitor from the US and one visitor from England and you just put six slash five slash 2012, one of those people is going to get that date wrong. Yep. Unless they absolutely know to, to translate it in their head. I thought I thought we were over this. I thought storing dates as strings was a no-no since the year 2000. Like we're never going to do that again. It is and I and I think some people are learning to not do that, but people keep doing it. Yeah. Trust me. I see it every single day. I mean, let's move on to the harder problem, which is managing time zones properly. Uh <laughs> I actually just wrote a three-part article for mssqltips.com on storing um, date time data as UTC and forgetting any of this local nonsense where you're, you're storing Eastern time zone, right? The, you know, the, so many things can go wrong with that, especially in time, time zones that observe DST. Yes. Um, you have these problems in the spring and the fall where you have, you redo an hour. So if you have a, you could have a transaction that starts at one thirty, um, the first time right. you went through. And it finishes at one fifteen. You're right. You know, you can have this thing that lasts 45 minutes and according to the, the time that the server stamped on, you know, the start and the end times of that thing, it, it, it took negative time to complete Yep. when really, you know, it took 45 minutes. Um, and then there's an hour that doesn't happen in the fall and the same, same idea, or I guess it depends on where, where you are, if north, north or south hemisphere, but um, you have this gap of time where it didn't it, it didn't exist so you have something that starts at uh at you know 1 or 12:55 a.m. and it finished at 2:05 a.m. well you know that the job took 10 minutes but um according to the clock it took an hour and 10 minutes yeah well it sort of speaks to this idea of don't store absolute time like that you care about how long something takes store the number of minutes Right, and uh, but I and I think there are two important things there. You do want to store the start time and the end time, but you want to store that as UTC. Yeah, because you can always calculate the the number of minutes it took. Right. Yeah, but then you get back to your regional times that deal with the daylight savings time change and so forth. But I I find most of the time I'm I'm better off taking the start time, the number of minutes of execution, because most of the time when you want to figure out how you know the total amount of time spent on something, doing all that math calculation of differentials does not help anybody. Right. Well, the, it's, so the duration though you can always calculate from UTC because UTC doesn't shift back and forth. Right. Right. So that's my suggestion in every system I've implemented to date, uh, where I've had enough say in the design has always stored UTC and the server it's sitting on is always in UTC and the web servers are always in UTC right? because it's very easy to change from UTC to some other time zone. It's very hard to change from some local time zone to some other time zone. Right. Yeah. Live in UTC and things are better. Right. And time zones are weird. <laughs> I actually, there was a Twitter conversation I had with a few people yesterday about, or maybe it was Friday. Um, or over the weekend. But anyway, it was, uh, it, it was about, um, DST and, and UTC and how we should abolish DST. Yes. And my suggestion is actually go one step further. So get rid of DST because DST is silly. Let's live in DST year round. Right. We're not farming anymore. We're not, you know, it, we're not relying on sunlight. Yes. To do most of the things that we're doing. And for the things that we do rely on sunlight, 
you can shift the workday instead of shifting the clock. Yeah. Right. You can start later or start earlier, whatever, whatever the needs are. Um, but I have a, a suggestion that goes even further. And that is why doesn't everybody just use a UTC clock? Why do I, why does my workday have to be nine to five in my time zone? Why can't my workday on the East coast of the U S be 1400 UTC to 2200 UTC. And sure. that's just my, that's my work day. Well, there was the movement towards internet time where there was a thousand units per day and it was the same time everywhere all of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Similar, similar concept. Yeah. I, I used that back in the original dot com boom when it was sort of hip because it was good for scheduling. Oh, sure. You know, sure. just getting meetings scheduled was, was a challenge with people distributed around the world. Yeah. But I mean, that's, yeah. Time zone is one of those crazy things, and and it's it on the code perspective, it's challenging too, not just on the data perspective as well. Right. Uh, any other favorite bad habits you still see recurring? Mm, merge. So I have uh, I have some issues with merge. I see a lot of people moving to merge because it promises this um, single statement um, atomicity and uh, protection from race conditions, and you know all of your code will now work and. Um, I see a lot of people also getting bitten by uh, different things. So you can't rely on merge to operate as a single operation unless you escalate um, the isolation level or you use hold lock on the target table. Right. And I don't remember the last time I've seen hold lock in a merge statement. Right. Most people, most people just assume that because it's one statement, it's all going to happen at once and there, there's no concern about concurrency or race conditions or any of that. So folks who've never seen merge before, this is the ability to, to merge two tables together doing insert, update, delete all at once. Uh, right. So the, the, the old method used to be, I think people refer to it as upsert. Right. So, you know, you update the rows that exist and then you insert the rows that don't right. and you delete the ones that no longer exist or that, uh, don't, well, it depends. I mean, there, there are different ETL methodologies, but, right. uh, there are a bunch of different ways, um, to do that with multiple statements and merge, you know, created this convoluted syntax and it's standard based. So I can't really fault Microsoft for that. Um, but it seems to promise this, uh, you know, combining of all of those statements into one single action. And it's actually multiple actions yeah, that, are, I think that are separate. This is people not taking responsibility for the problem. Doing inserts, updates, and deletes, you can still make that a transaction. It doesn't make it any more atomic than a merge statement. Right. But, but I think a lot of people have the perception that because it's a single statement, now they don't have to worry about the transaction around it. And that's, yeah. where, that's where people get bit. Um, and there are also some bugs, and uh, I have an article about this. If you do a search for "use caution with merge," right? Uh, it, and if uh, in hindsight, I would have called it "merge with caution," uh, because <laughs> there are there are signs all over the place that say that. Nice. So, um, uh, but I go through and I step through, uh, I think a dozen or so bugs, and some of them are wrong results bugs that are still active and not fixed in any of any released version of SQL Server. Um, that deal with the merge statement, and it's it's because of some of this, um, some of the isolation and the and the techniques that they use behind the scenes to implement that merge statement. And there are some edge cases that they miss, and that don't you know that allow foreign key constraints to be violated, for example. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I don't like the statement. I've I've always written my own sequel. I think you could take responsibility for a sequel. If the only excuse is because of transactions, you're fooling yourself anyway. It doesn't, right. it doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, and you know the thing that I like about using the old-fashioned method is that those update and insert and delete statements haven't changed in decades. Yeah, and they're they're tried and tested. They work. I absolutely know how to control everything within them. I can't control merge because yeah. it does a bunch of stuff behind the scenes for me. It also does some fun stuff with triggers. So if you have a, a trigger that has that's for insert, update, and delete, um, check out add at row count. It's uh, it's very funny. What happens there? Uh oh. It's it basically sums up the row count from all of the operations. So if you're if you think you're handling an insert and let's say no rows are inserted and only rows are updated, um, the trigger will fire three times. So it'll fire for the insert, it'll fire for the update, and it'll fire for the delete. The row count will be the same every time, and it'll be the sum of rows affected by the entire statement. So you have no way of knowing what actually happened. Well, you you do. You have to you have to perform more extensive checks, right? Um, but most people, well, I, I can't say most people, but I have seen people rely on add at row count in a trigger to determine if they should proceed and do things, and then they just <laughs> go and do things, oh, and man. so the, all of those triggers are going to fire every time if, if any action resulted in at least one row being affected. So, yeah, it just makes me dislike merge even more. Yeah, is that funny? <laughs> are we sounding like old men now, Aaron? What's happening? Oh, we, to us? Are, we are. Can you get off my lawn, please? <laughs> you get out of <laughs> here with your merge statement and your strings and dates. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and everything XML is evil in SQL Server. Are we, uh, yeah, I've never understood the benefit of XML, and it, it might be the same thing where it's just because I'm a curmudgeonly old man. Yeah, um, but I just feel. It just adds so much bulk to the amount of data you need to pass around back and forth. Well, it, and it makes every query more complex now. Now you have to dip into the XML. You know this old line of, uh, you know, now you're just covering your mistakes in code. Right. Yeah, and they've you know they've made some improvements in the way that XML indexes work, but it's still you, you can't cover every single scenario and. It's um, it just seems anti-relational to me. Yeah. Well, it's just you're you're duplicating a bunch of functionality to avoid some other problems that are going to just create more problems than they fix. Yeah, you're just you're shifting the problem yeah. right, to something else. That's Once all. again. Yeah. Uh, well, sir, you know, always fun to talk to someone who's been in the trenches of dealing with all of this. I've definitely been in the trenches. Yeah, yeah. without a doubt. <laughs> and you and big thing for you is the next version of Plan Explorer version eight. Uh, for uh, our performance monitoring tools, so performance advisor and event manager, that's uh, that suite is 8.0 is coming out um, right. at, as I'm speaking. And uh, Plan Explorer, a free query analysis tool. Please, uh, please go and download that. That's uh, that's a free tool, very useful for anybody ever looking at execution plans. Absolutely, Aaron Bertrand. Thanks so much for talking to me. All right, thanks, Richard. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. 